For those of you who are here for the first time, uh, I'm Pastor Jeremy, and we are going through the Bible in five years period of time, and you've come at an exceptionally great time because we're just starting this journey again. We just finished it. We're starting over again. And we're going into the book of Genesis. And what we do as a congregation is we read six days a week together, portions of the scripture. And then the sermon on Sunday is based in whole or in part on some of what we have read throughout the week. If you want to walk through us, walk through us, that would be terrible. and sounds very painful, actually. If you want to walk with us through the Bible, there's a couple of ways you can do that. You can go out to the information desk and get one of the reading plans that has the whole year outlined for you, what we're reading on every specific day. We would love for you to be able to do that. We also have accompanying journals that can go with it if you're a note taker. Those of you who are note takers appreciate that. If you buy them both, it's $10. If you just go for the the uh, schedule of reading. It's just we ask for a $3 donation for that. If you don't have it, we'd rather just give it to you because we want you following along. You can also follow along with us on our YouTube channel. Um, it's really easy to find. It's youtube.com backslash Heights Christian Church. It's pretty cool, right? I can remember that. You guys remember that? I hope so. But you can follow us along there. What we do is we uh, have a devotional that we kind of break down our study for that day. We read the scripture. We read that time of scripture, pull one thing from it. So you can follow along with us and start your day off right and be around that same area. So that when we come in on Sundays, we're ready with the word, ready in our hearts to step into this deeper study of God. And that's what we're going to be doing today. So thank you guys for being with us. You know, last week we talked about establishing foundations. That's really what Genesis is all about. Establishing the idea of creation, establishing the idea of uh, uh, marriage and family, establishing the idea of nations, and establishing the idea of uh, God's separate nation that he put apart for himself. We see all the seeds of that there, as well as the promise of the future Messiah. These are all the themes that we're going to see within the book of Genesis. And my sermon title today is called attacking foundations kind of kind of weird because all we read in genesis chapter one and chapter two was about these foundations that were created god has a lot to say concerning foundations and the ultimate foundation that the bible is bringing us to is that of jesus christ as a matter of fact i want to read a couple of things from the new testament that talk about the foundation of christ that is to be laid as we begin our study in genesis is to lead us to jesus In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says these words. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. We begin to see this idea of foundation that revolves around the person of Jesus, around the teachings of Jesus. We see that further in the teachings of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 10 and 11, it says this, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful on how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation of faith for you and me. And believe it or not, even in Genesis, we're seeing the beginning of building patterns of that foundation of faith. And two places of foundation in particular we're going to focus on in our study in Genesis. And it's so important that we pay attention to what's happening. Because I believe that the foundations of our faith from the culture around us are under attack. And have been under attack for some time. And they have a profound effect upon not just us, not just our families, because the family is the smallest unit of society. And it's already spread out through society, and we're seeing the effects of what happens when the foundations are attacked. As a matter of fact, Psalm 11 talks about, you know, when the foundations are attacked, what can the righteous do? Well, this is where we find ourselves now today. And in order to understand what's being attacked and how it's being attacked, we have to understand what the foundation is first. We know that the ultimate foundation is in Jesus Christ. This is where the study of the Word of God and where the message of the Word of God ultimately leads to. But that foundation begins to be laid in Genesis and in two key areas. Genesis chapter 1 is all about the days of creation, God's special creation, where he has created the heavens and the earth, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was hovering over, and the Spirit was hovering over the waters of the deep, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And he splits light from darkness on day one. And in day two, he separates the waters below to the waters above. Day three, he brings the land together and produces all of the seed-bearing plants after their own kinds. Day four, he creates the sun, the moon, the stars that are used by us to mark days and weeks and months and celebrations and festivals and all of those things. Day five, he creates the animals that fly, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. And then day six, he creates the rest of the land animals and he creates man and woman to be made in the image of God. After all of this creation that takes place in the six days, the seventh day, he sits back and he rests and he marks it as holy. And we read in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, these words, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all of their array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from the work of creating that he had done. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Is that a historical account or merely a story of creation? And does it make a difference? Because we read in a couple of other places in the scripture that goes back to Genesis. 
They're found in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments. Moses comes down after being with God and he lays out these Ten Commandments before he goes up to be with God again for 40 days and 40 nights to bring back the entire teachings of God for the people of Israel. And we read from verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor daughter, nor your manservant, or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's not the only place we see that reference. As a matter of fact, if we just flip a few pages further, we'll find ourselves in Exodus chapter 31. And he begins to talk about the Sabbath. Again, in verse 12 and in verse 17, skipping down to 17, he says this. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he abstained from work and rested. Is God referring merely to a story or to an actual historical event? Because the Israelite culture would be basing their understanding of what Genesis says for their obedience to God's command in Exodus chapter 20 and Exodus chapter 31. We read further on concerning God's special creation during this time. And the second one is a little bit more concrete for us, I believe. Concerning men and women and the creation of God. And starting in verse 26 of chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Over the livestock, over all the earth. And over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Going into chapter 2 where we see a dialing in, if you will, of the sixth day of creation. Where we're given order of how God put that all together. We read in verse 18. The Lord said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. 
And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and he closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. But for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and wife were both naked, and they felt no shame same question is that an allegory is that simply a story of creation or is this a historical account of how God created men and women that man became a living being that woman has a definition that they're complementary to one another in order to create the family That from that next generation, we get a new term for this man and woman who is here on earth would be father and mother. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to their wife, and they shall become one flesh. Is this a historical account or merely a story so that we can make this construction our own? Let's find out what Jesus thought about that in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is questioned about divorced. Divorced? Oh, my goodness. And some Pharisees came to him, verse 3, to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. How is Jesus treating this account that we're reading back in Genesis that we've read this past week? Is it merely a story or is it an account of the creation of God that has authority for you and me? That these definitions mean something. That creation means something when it's God's way. And so we see how God has created all things. We see that God has created male and female for the purpose of being married in unity before God And that man's definition or try to redefine those things holds no water with Jesus. Therefore, what God has put together, his authority, he created it. He gets to call it what it is. He knows how it works. How many of you have ever created something before? Raise your hand. I mean, like really created something. Raise your hand. When you create something, you know what that purpose of that creation is, don't you? Whatever it might be, I have no idea what it is. I don't want to ask because I'm scared, okay? So just being honest. But if you created something and somebody wanted to come up to you and say, oh, this is for this, and it was something totally different than for what you created for, you would have every right to correct them because this is your creation, We are God's creation, made in his image. And he's called us male and female. He's called us man and woman. He's called us 
husband and wife. He has called us mother and father. And these definitions have meaning because of the one who has created. And these foundational definitions, this this testimony that God has given to us through Moses has authority. And there's implications when we try to undermine that authority and create a different narrative than is revealed to us by God in his word. You see, right now, these two areas of creation and sexuality are attacking all of us as believers in Christ in the culture where we're living in, attacking our young people in the universities and in the school systems because they are being brought up in the public areas under the form of a different gospel, a form of a different foundation of truth other than the word of God, a form other than what has been revealed in the word of God. And too many of us have compromised that word to our neglect and to the neglect of that next generation. Because there's some far-reaching implications toward understanding the Word of God in any other context than the way in which God designed it. You know, a few years ago, probably about 10 years ago, it's amazing, 10 is a few. 20 years ago, 10 was a long time. 10 is not that long anymore. That's scary. But the truth of the matter is about 10 years ago, I remember youth coming into my office and talking to me about their classes. And one of the things that they would talk to me about is how evolution was being taught to them in not just their, their science class, but it would go into their math class. It would go into their English class. It would go into all of the other classes. They were surrounded with the idea that there was nothing special about them because they were just the latest and greatest advancement in the evolutionary chain. Great, but you know what? A hundred years, somebody will be greater still. And there are some implications toward adopting a worldview of evolution or to even trying to synchronize it within that of Christianity. Thinking that somehow they are compatible. They are wholly incompatible with one another. They lead to two different areas and two different sets of philosophical conclusions based upon the direction that they go. If we believe in evolution and we take the evolutionists at their word concerning the end result of this evolution, this is what Dr. William Provine has said. He said, not believing in God, once you give up God because you believe in evolution... Once you give up that there is no God, you give up that there's no life after death. Following that, there's no ultimate foundation for ethics. There's no ultimate meaning in life. And finally, there's no human free will. And the way he puts it, we live, we die, and we're gone. We're utterly gone. Because believing in evolution hits at the foundation of creation. The thing
thing in which God has created you and me and told us that we are made in his image, which makes us of immeasurable worth. The redemption that will come through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, by which the foundation of faith is laid and beginning to be laid right here, leading to Jesus. You take that foundation away, you can't get to Jesus because Jesus is no longer special. How many of you have been to National History, Natural History Museum? Raise your hand. It's a cool place to go to. You guys realize, and I think I've said it up here before, but for those of you who haven't been here before, did you realize natural in the Natural History Museum is a philosophical statement? It is telling you that they do not believe in a supernatural history museum. It's naturalistic, without God. You are getting the history of the earth without God. You're walking into this place and learning the history of the earth without God. These are all the natural processes that happens. When you walk through it all, I'm not standing in awe. I'm in utter, utter disbelief because it reduces man to nothing more than the next link on the evolutionary chain. You're here, you're gone, you mean nothing. Isn't it cool? And in our public school systems, this is what your children are taught. Five days a week. And if they don't hear the other side of this narrative, they can buy into it, lock, stock, and barrel, leading to that philosophical downfall that there is no God, no life after death, no alternative foundation for ethics, no ultimate right or wrong, no ultimate meaning in life, no free will. I might as well just do what I want. The second area that is, oh, and and let me, let me share with you real quick before I go any further. Um, Going back to this, why it's incompatible with uh, Christian belief. We can't try and force Genesis 1 and 2 into the framework of evolution. It doesn't work. Not at all. I want to read some passages in Romans that utterly make no sense if we try to put evolution into the framework of Genesis 1 and 2. One that you guys know very well, many Christians know this one, is Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. But what is the wages of sin again? Death. So in order for the Bible to be true, in order for the Word of God to truly be the Word of God, there can be no death before sin. Let me ask you another question. Can animals sin? No. They're created to do the things that they're created to do and they walk in them. So there should be no death before Adam. If we try to fit an evolutionary framework and say that these days are epochs of time as some have tried to to synchronize these two views together, what we get is that God creates land animals and uh, creates the sea animals and the birds first and there's millions of years that go by. You know what happens over those millions of years? Those animals die. I remember growing up and seeing the dinosaur books and reading about the dinosaur books. What happened to all those dinosaurs? They died. 
And according to the evolutionary theory, when did they die? They died millions of years before humans were ever on the earth. Do you guys see how that's incompatible with what the scripture says? Well, if there was death before Adam, what did Jesus die for? That's a big question, isn't it? There's another question here. If we look in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25... Paul talks about it this way. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the, one, by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now, if we try to fit Genesis 1 and 2 into that that evolutionary framework, chapter 8 in Romans makes no sense whatsoever. Because we read in Genesis chapter 1 the entire time that there was evening and there was morning. God created and it was what? It was good. God created day one. It was good. God created day two. It was good. Day three, day four, day five, day six, the culmination of creation. God saw all that he had created, and it was? It was very good. Now, let me ask you a question. Because that's at the end of this week, after man has been made, everything is very good. Does it sound like? The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God. Do you think bondage to decay is very good? That it's being subjected into bondage to decay? Is that very good? Does that fit the description that we read in Genesis chapter 1 of God's creation? There's an event that's going to yet take place that we're going to read about. You guys know it because a lot of you guys are like, I know it's coming next. That's not till next week. But I want you to see right now how that makes no sense if we try to bring an evolutionary framework into Genesis 1 because now we have decay and death that God is using to create a more perfect creation. That doesn't sound like it goes together. It actually makes the Bible sound a little bit less sensical. Would you not agree? And this is what our kids are being taught. And we see it on our TV shows. Go watch PBS. It's that nice science special. They do the same thing. And they undercut the scripture every single time. 
And we've heard it for so long that many of us have just tried to, to try and synchronize these things to see if they'll fit together that way. And it doesn't work because it puts them at odds with one another. And guess what? People who are looking at us trying to say that evolution is true on the one end and then over here on the other end that God's word is true and trying to synchronize that run into passages like Romans chapter 8 and wonder whether or not they can truly trust everything that the word of God actually says. Or Romans chapter 6, it talks about the wages of sin is death. That death is a result of our sinful actions. Can they trust that to be true if we're willing to compromise that death existed before that? See, these are foundational truths. These aren't something you and I can just give up on willy-nilly. It's not a big deal. But if the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? Because if we have no basis for ethics because of a worldview that says we're here when we're gone, nothing really means anything. You're lucky to be around. Someday there'll be somebody better than you. What does that do for the foundation of things like marriage? It's, it's funny. There, there's a movie called Expelled. It was out about 15 years ago. You can watch it for free on YouTube because we did it as a life group last week. It was fantastic. But in one of those sections that they're talking about the effects of evolution that has had on these scientists, one of the things that, that the scientists say, you know, what we're hoping for is less and less religion so that we have more and more science. There'll be this great takeaway that we have more science and more science and more science, and that science will lead to a better utopian nation. Well, we supposedly live in a more scientific world right now than we ever have before. Has that made more sense over time? How's the last 10 years gone sexually? Because the things that we're doing now in our society and that we're forcing upon our children within the public school system goes against God's creative design revealed in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And these kids, I'm not mad at them. Right now we have a generation from 9 to 24, 20% of them because of the pushing of this ideology in all of these areas. 20% of them are identifying, whether through peer pressure or because they actually believe it, as LGBTQ, plus, minus, ampersand. I don't know. They keep adding stuff to it. 20%. Christian, are you teaching that at home? Because I'm not. Where are they getting this from? They're getting it from our government that's pushing this They're, because they've created laws that have tried to redefine this marriage. And Jesus has said, guess what? What God has put together, let not man separate. This is not a creation of man that they can change on their whims. It's a creation of God. And it must be protected, first and foremost, by those who believe in God to that next generation. It's pushed in our schools. There are more schools now that teach this than anything. It's in all the curriculum. 
oh my goodness, you, you want nightmares at night? Just follow the libs of TikTok, you know, on, on Twitter sometime. Just to see what's the possibility of some of these teachers that could be in our schools teaching your kids and never telling you. Contradicting what you believe concerning the word of God and what God's designed order is. And they're buying into it. And if the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? A study done by uh, sociologists uh, talked about faith and said that the number one reason that kids and adults will move away from faith are two things, drug use and sexual immorality. That when they break God's design of sexuality, that it becomes a, a pivot point for them. That they would rather have that immoral lifestyle rather than the God who created them in his image. And Christian parent, no matter where you think you are, if you're sending your kids to these public school systems... You're taking a chance, an unnecessary risk that may not have been there 15 years ago. Just being honest with you. And run the risk of the foundation of faith and your children being destroyed. And the more we hang around media, good grief. All you can see everywhere is the displays of this. Movies, television, everywhere. Right? And if the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? You see, these things are being attacked and have been attacked for a while. And we have a choice to make. Are we going to double down on our belief in the Word of God? And believe that these are true accounts that God has said of himself. That set up the foundation of faith that leads to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But it begins in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 for what he's established. Either that's true or it's not, but it has profound implications. Do you believe it? Or have we compromised? Given a foothold to the evil one and this evil philosophy that will lead our kids to a place where it will be easier to reject God. Believe that there's no life after death. No ultimate foundation for ethics. No ultimate meaning in life. And for the young people who have been under that, I feel for you, I've been under it myself. Before I came to Christ, I believed, well, not all of the things that you guys are being taught today. But the evolutionary framework, all of this. Let me tell you something. When I came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, when I began to understand that I was created in his image, that he had a plan for my life, it transformed everything around me because now I understood the reason for which I was created. That ultimately leads to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It changed it forever. 
I didn't have to find my meaning in, in something that was man-made and created and going to fade with the next fad. The reason that we're seeing letters added to this alphabet of stuff is because it's not a fad enough to have just three letters or four letters, and it's increased to five, and now there's a plus, and now you can have an infinite number of letters. You know why? Because we're seeking meaning for ourselves, devoid from God and his creation of us, and God has a much better plan, a much better plan. See, that's what the foundation of Genesis is all about. But you and I can't just simply discard it, read over it, or treat it as a nice story. It's either true or it's not because it hits at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've been watching for 20 years as the secular institutions and the media have chipped away at the faith of this next generation of faith because we've compromised in this area. We want to be compatible with it. We don't want to look stupid. I don't care. What the world says. Because I believe that Jesus died and rose again. I really do. But if he did, then that means the things that he said is true. That means that the things in this word of God are true. And I want to let you know that there, are, there is plenty of evidence to point to the direction of Genesis 1 and 2 being a literal account. Despite what a lot of people would say. My encouragement for you as parents is to get and as just believers in Christ, is to get familiar with that information. Answers in Genesis for a young earth creation, ICR. Reasons for an old earth creation. I find it hard to believe in old earth creation, just my personal opinion. I think this is an actual account. But one thing you can't have in either one of these is death before sin. You can't. It's not possible. It hits at the heart of the gospel, the foundation of faith in which God is established because no other foundation can be laid except that of Christ Jesus. And anything that hits at the heart of that gospel to destroy that foundation of faith is something that you and I as parents, you and I as believers in Christ should fight against. So I want to throw some things out there for you. I believe God has created you and I in his image, and that gives us tremendous worth. I believe that there's a purpose in your life. That purpose, first and foremost, is to glorify Jesus Christ. We begin to see that here in Genesis. Some of you might be saying, oh, my goodness, my kids are in public school. I don't want you to despair. I want you to equip yourself. I want you to think about maybe getting them out of hearing that five days a week, being surrounded in an atmosphere and a culture that is really anti-God. I, I want to encourage those of us who maybe have homeschooled our kids, private schooled our kids, to talk with some of these parents who might be saying, hey, I, I, want, I want an alternative. Help me. Help me find that alternative. Come and talk to me. Me and Shannon homeschooled ours. But I believe we're at a tipping point in our culture right now where I, I can't. I just can't. I've seen too much. I've watched too many walk away. I've watched the philosophical underpinnings of what's being taught in the schools whittle away the faith of those who've been faith, who had been previously seemingly faithful and now no longer identify as Christian. And I'm just going to tell you it's not worth the chance that your child might not survive it. It just isn't. 
And for you and me, we need to reestablish our own foundations of faith. What is it that we've believed? What about these first two chapters of Genesis? Have we convinced ourselves? Have we treated it only as a story? Have we been one of those who tried to compromise and say that I can have the world's definition of creation at the expense of God's definition of creation and try to mesh them together and see if it works? A lot of the Bible that talks about the redemption of Jesus ends up not making a lot of sense if we do that. God wants us to choose. Jesus calls us to choose. And if we believe that God has created and God has joined together, then it's not up for man to destroy it. Would you stand with me? foundations are being attacked what will the righteous do those who are in Christ are righteous not by your own righteousness but because of his what are you going to do what's your next step how do we walk in obedience let's pray God thank you for this time thank you for your word thank you that as we establish Genesis 1 Genesis 2 God, I I just, I see the grandeur of your creation and realize that you truly do have a plan for us. We're being made in your image. We have value because of you. We have purpose because of you. And it leads ultimately to following Jesus Christ. God, if there's any here today who have not experienced that purpose and try to mask it with the things that this world has made, that they may come to know you as Lord and Savior, that they may know you as a righteous, holy, good God who created all things good, and that that's death and decay and confusion is not of you. That you wish to restore, to redeem, and to give purpose. Help us walk in that purpose. Help us see your word as true from the very first word written in Genesis to the very last word written in Revelation. And let us offer the hope that you have given, both through your word and through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.